Welcome to the Adventure Audio Podcast. This is episode 155, and we are interviewing Ash Roten. Uh, Ash is an outdoor writer and adventurer. He's been published in National Geographic, Guardian, Outside Magazine, as well as a whole host of other publications. Absolute pleasure to have him on. Fascinating individual uh, who's had some tremendous experiences that he shares with us. And uh, he's really just getting started. So like a lot of our guests, of course, we hope that we can have him back on. We hope that you love this episode of the pod. Uh, We have been away for a little while. We apologize to all of our listeners for the delay in programming. We'll try and avoid doing that in the future if we've got uh, travel plans coming up that uh, prevents us from being able to podcast remotely together. We'll try and get something in the can for you so that we can release it uh, while we're out adventuring. And we're going to be having a conversation soon about some of those recent adventures as well. This episode is brought to you by the State Bicycle Company. You can find them at statebicycle.com. You can use code AUDIO100. That's going to give you 100 bucks off a bike. They have bikes starting at $399, so that's an incredible deal. That's 25% off. They also have now carbon fiber road bikes. They have carbon fiber... uh, all all road gravel bikes as well as uh, aluminum and steel which they've always done so check them out at statebicycleco.com they've also got an e-bike so definitely definitely worth checking out as well as 4i technologies so you can visit them at four and then the letter i four times four i i i i and they of course are the maker of all kinds of awesome power meters and heart rate monitors and all kinds of devices to help you become a better athlete so we're all, we also have some stuff from 4i that we're going to be giving away soon, so stay tuned for that. Uh, on to this episode of the podcast and Ash Routen. If there's something in this episode or a future episode that you'd like us to discuss, please reach out to us. It's adventureaudiopodcast at gmail.com. And if you're able to give us a positive rating or review on whatever podcast platform you're finding the show, that goes a long way to help us find new listeners. Thanks so much. On to Ash Routen. Let's talk about pronunciation. Is it Routen or Routen? So let's go for the latter, Routen. Routen. Yeah. Okay. And is uh, out? I would have said. Yeah. Is Ash short for anything? Um, full name's Ashley L E Y, but of course that confuses a lot of people. They think it's a girl. So uh, I just go for Ash. <laughs> okay. Ash is joining us from Leicester in uh, the Midlands of the UK. Ash is a uh, PhD that specializes, I believe, in exercise physiology. He is a journalist. He writes for the Explorers Web. He's written for National Geographic, Outside Magazine, I believe The Guardian, etc., etc. It goes on and on. And I'm not sure how we first met Ash. It was several years ago. I think it was after one of my trips, possibly. But I started following you on the socials, as we say, and have been intrigued by some of your writing and some of your stuff. So welcome to the uh, Adventure Audio Podcast. Thank you, Laval, and it's uh, yeah, it's really nice to put a face um, to our communications on social media, and and good to meet you as well, Peter. Thank you for being here. Uh, my pleasure. So, Ash, you are—I um, know you uh, primarily because of your writing for Explorers Web, and you write on a wide variety of topics, from uh, in a lot of high altitude mountaineering stuff, um, mostly in the Arctic and the. Uh, mountain environments is what you write about and you have a real love for cold weather even though you live in a warm place and you're intrigued by arctic uh history and arctic adventure so why don't we start from 
your latest expedition that you just did. Can you uh, update us on what you just did? Sure, yeah. And uh, I think you're probably one of the first people to describe England as a warm place, Lavelle. Even <laughs> this morning, it's grey, rainy, drizzly. It's all relative. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, so, yeah, I've, I've just come back from a couple of weeks hiking in, in Greenland, um, which to uh, to me and others in the UK is exotic, perhaps not for you guys with the Canadian high Arctic. Um, and as you well know, Greenland's only 5% ice sheet, but on, on the fringes on the western coast where we are, um, it's, it's free and ice of ice and snow in the summer. So uh, a friend of friend of mine and who I go on um, long term trips with repeatedly, Phil, uh, we flew into a place called Kangalusuak on the west coast, which is a um, a former U.S. military base, but now really acts as the international um, airport hub for Greenland. Flew into there, and that just so happens to be about forty k from the western edge of the Greenland ice sheet. And a place called Point Six Sixty, which, um, if anyone knows about polar adventure, that's where a lot of Greenland ice cap crossings start and finish. So that was quite hallowed turf that I wanted to um, to get to. Um, and the long and short of it is that Phil and I were dropped off um, by one of these big Unimob trucks um, at Point Six Sixty. Um, and there's a story uh, about how you can actually get there because. 20, 25 years ago, Volkswagen uh, built a road from Kangalooswag to the ice cap. Um, I don't know whether you can hear <laughs> my new kitten in the background there. Do, would you like me to, sh- to shut well, the door? You can... Well, we uh, we can hear it, but luckily I know that you just posted that you had a new kitten. I saw that on your social media. So as soon as I heard it, I knew what it was, your brand new little kitty. So we can hear it. So it's up to you. Um uh, if you want to, if you want to move the little guy, I'll just tweet the door for you. <laughs> we love this. Just so this time, we're slightly less off-putting. It's pretty cute. I don't know. Anyways, Eric, I don't know if you heard our Eric Larson podcast, but his daughter was yelling at him and throwing shoes. So um, it's <laughs> we're used to this. <laughs> I don't know which is what. So, so you, and you went to Kangarlusuak, and then you took a uh, like a large uh, uh, all-terrain vehicle to the start of the trek. Yeah, absolutely. And um, 20 odd years ago, Volkswagen built this road out there because they wanted to test um, cars in secret, apparently, and also shoot cool, you know, product um, video and photography out on the ice cap. That only lasted for five years before it was canned. Um, and to this day, there remains a, um, a very good road out to the ice cap, which tourist companies ferry people from uh, some of the cruise ships out to the ice cap. Um, so we hooked up one of those um turned our back to the ice cap and walked to the coast for 10 days to um coastal town called Sisimia, which is one of those very typical greenlandic towns with the little triangular red and yellow buildings but along the way it's it's mountains and they are remote they're not huge in scale and prominence like you would have in north america um they're probably a little bit more akin to the mountains in scotland um, which if anyone is familiar with, you know, sort of between 500 and 1,400 metres. So not big, big mountains, but certainly a really remote place. And and to us as well, um, at least in the UK, some exotic wildlife like muskox and arctic hare and arctic fox and, and caribou and, and those kind of things, which, um, yeah, again, may be less exotic to you guys, but um, to uh, 
with someone from the middle of England, um, really nice opportunity to uh, see different types of wildlife and, and be in a remote Arctic environment. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting you you keep referencing not very exotic to us, but you'd be surprised, Ash, at how few Canadians have ever been up into the Arctic. Um, you know, obviously because of my interest and my job, I'm up there often, but uh, very few people have ever been up into the proper Arctic where you see muskox, uh, mm-hmm. Arctic hares, and Arctic fox. Uh, very, very few Southern Canadians. And, and as you know, we have a very tiny population up there. I mean, we wouldn't even come close to Philly Wembley with our entire population in the Arctic, so... Yeah, and that's very similar to you know to what I've I've read and, and heard from some of your your Arctic colleagues as well, um, which I don't know whether that surprises me, given that you know many of your cities experience harsh winters and similar sorts of freezing temperatures. So you know it strikes me it's not the temperature or those conditions that's the barrier. I guess is it? I assume it maybe cost um, very expensive, very remote, no roads. For uh, the vast majority of our Arctic, there's no way to get around unless you're on an airplane, which is good for my uh, business. But uh, yeah, it's it's a, it, it's funny. It's uh, you know most Canadians uh, live within about 400 kilometers of the U.S. border, obviously because of the fact that that's where the arable land is and that's where uh, the weather is the best and that's our biggest trading partner. But because of that, you know, an area the size of several Western Europe's is virtually empty. So, yeah. Yeah, and I guess, let's face it as well, there's, there's not much to do there. So unless you are a, an outdoor lover, and, um, you know, that was really striking in Greenland for um, some of the locals at this place called Sissimia at the end, which is the second largest town in Greenland. It's something like 5,500 population. Um, unless you're out hunting or out on the land, involved in tourism or fishing, there's not much to do. And unfortunately, we saw the kind of you know, typical... Um, experience in some ways that you know a lot of people hanging outside of off licenses for head on some sort of substance um unfortunately that you know there's probably little um income or, or job opportunities for them um and historically lack of you know good quality education and all of the similar kind of um issues i guess that apply first nations populations around the world whether that be in you know north america yeah. australia greenland and so on so that was yeah that was certainly an eye-opener mm-hmm. and have you been to our canadian arctic i know you were planning on doing a trip up to i think it was Ellesmere, right a few years ago prior to covid i think we were talking yeah unfortunately not no um and i know you know jerry kobolenko you've, you've you've met with jerry so um, Jerry is the editor of Explorers Web, which I can talk about a little later. That their websites are right for, um, and he spent his career photographing um, and travelling in the Arctic, particularly Ellesmere. And he and I got talking initially when I joined um, Explorers Web. I'd just come off the back of a, a trip to walk across the world's largest frozen lake in Siberia, um, and I was wanting to do to do more, quite simply, to go. Um, to somewhere a little bit more remote, more challenging. Um, I'd always wanted to go to the Canadian Arctic, and Jerry said, hey, why don't you um, come to Baffin? There's a really great route there um, I'd like to do on the, the coastline that faces Baffin Bay in Greenland. Um, let's see if we can make it happen. And I flew out to to Jerry, who lives in Canmore in the Rockies, um, met up with him, got some kit together, did a bit of training, and we shipped our kit up and... Um, to a place called Clyde River, a small Inuit hamlet, which obviously you know well, mm-hmm. well um, on the on the far coastline of Baffin, again that faces Greenland, 
and um, we were two days from flying out um, to Clyde River to then spend 40 days walking up that um, eastern coastline to Pond Inlet at the top of that. Wow. Um, and, and then COVID struck, you know, the UK was locked down, couldn't fly out. Um, and of course, you know, ethically, wouldn't it be the right thing to potentially go and take COVID to very vulnerable populations up in the Nunavut? So, yeah, so so that was canned. We had, you know, kilos and kilos of uh, cheese and granola and salami and chocolate and all the good stuff that you eat on expeditions um, already up there. And another friend of mine had sent his skis up there for me to use. I'd shipped up, you know, my big, big all the, you know, all the big, big boots and all the stuff you need. Um, and so that was just uh, abandoned there for a 12, 18 months um, until I could get it shipped back um, to the UK. We tried to go the next year in 21, but again, you know, it was really close then. Um, and, you know, since both Jerry and I work-wise, things have moved on. And it's, it's really hard, as you know, getting 40 days off, off of work and around family life to go and do these things. So I, I'd like to think we can make it happen again, but it's not on the horizon anytime soon. Yeah, I mean, what a spectacular part of the world. Clyde River is just ridiculous. And Pete, I don't know if you're familiar with it, but it's this uh, these fjord lands on the east coast of Baffin Island with um, vertical granite faces just leaping out of the ice straight up, and you can ski right to the base of them. And it's and then you come around and you end up in Pond Inlet, which is one of the most spectacular places in all of the Canadian Arctic with the view of Bylot Island across the water. It's just, it really is stunning. That would have been a life-changing trip. However, you're making the best of it. You you touched on this uh, walking across the the uh, largest frozen lake in the world, Lake Baikal in Siberia. Um, tell us about that. Tell us about the challenges Um uh, did you see any freshwater seals? All the regular Lake Baikal stuff? Yeah, so sadly not. And um, prior to, I think it was 2016, 2017, I've never heard of Lake Baikal. And I guess many of your listeners may not. And to put it simply, it is the world's largest volume frozen, uh, well, sorry, world's largest volume lake in the world. And it sits in Siberia, just north of the Mongolian border, um, right on the far kind of right-hand side of Russia. It's huge. Um, it's 650, 700 kilometres long. So um, that's the distance in the UK from London to, to Glasgow, right up in the middle of Scotland. Um, and it freezes enough that you can drive or walk across its surface in winter. So, you know, it's a couple of metres thick um, at its thickest. And um, a friend of mine, who Phil, who I, I mentioned earlier, who we went to Greenland um, biking with last month, Shipped some sleds over, found a, a local outfitter there who could um, pick us up at the airport, sort out all the, you know, like things that we need, whether it's food or petrol and fuel and that sort of stuff. Dropped us off um, it, near the southern point, um, and we spent about 19 and a half days just walking across its frozen surface and camping on the ice. Um, and, you know, anyone just has to Google Lake Baikal um winter photos and you'll see these amazing uh, images of marbled ice um, as far as the eye can see um, and lining the coastline you have these huge mountains you know sort of between two and a half three and a half thousand meters as well and so every day it's a joy to wake up open your eyes and if it's a clear day don't need to navigate you just know keep the mountains on your left and you have this beautiful sea of shimmering ice occasional snow patches and you're just just gliding along there's no resistance for your sled 
So it was not so uh, hard work um, as it would be, you know, pulling a sledge on, on, on snow. Um, and very stunning place. But of course, it's cold. So there are challenges around managing, you know, body, food, everything else in the cold. Um, Temperature-wise, I mean, I think the warmest we had was about minus five. The coldest would have been in the minus 30s. So quite a big variation. And it's humid as well. We didn't expect that. Um, and I guess that was you know, part of camping and, and operating on a, on, a, on a frozen lake that seemed to be quite a lot of humidity. So that was hard to manage clothing-wise. Um, and quite a lot of UV as well, bouncing straight off that ice. So ended up, um, yeah, bad sunburn and just trying to, to, to manage the, the face as well, walking me into a headwind, that combination of wind and strong UV and sun. So fairly minor things, actually. And I think if you're well-versed in cold travel, um, you know, those things are kind of routine. The usual stuff, though, you know, the same kind of things, I guess, when you, you've interviewed other other adventurers, it's the it's a little mind games going on, the soft voices in your head that are saying, you know, your blisters are hurting and haven't you done enough today? Maybe you should stop here and don't push on to gain this extra five or ten kilometres. All those kind of little games that you play with yourself i think for me those are probably the the harder elements rather than the uh, the, the physical um did you say 19 and a half days yeah yeah cool. 19 and a half days so it's it's a it's a big lake it's only about 50 kilometers across in in width but um it, it's very long um and being much like any expedition you you go through different phases and and it was just wonderful to see the variations um in the, the types of mountains and certainly at the start you you see some remote huts and a few remote communities you start to leave them behind it gets colder as you head further north there's a little bit more snow cover the mountains get bigger and more serious um and uh yeah just just lovely variation really and we had some interesting encounters along the way i mean this is uh, not to stereotype but this is remote russia and you meet some characters driving their 45-year-old vans um, along the ice road, rattling along it, you know, going too fast because they've been tanked up on vodka. They've got nothing else to do. Um, and uh, so some interesting characters were were met along the way, for sure. Well, that was my next question is, like, now, from a route perspective, is it is it fairly, you were going in essentially a, an established road route across the across the ice? Yeah, and this is where you know can never claim anything like being unsupported. It's pretty much walking from south to north and keeping the west coast and the mountains on your left hand side. And you could head right into the middle of the lake if you wanted and be just totally awash with with ice, um, and which we we did at times. But we tried to keep within a couple of kilometres of the coast so you could actually see to navigate. It's fairly right. easier and. And in some cases where there's snow cover, you can follow some of the vehicle tracks as well to, you know, to hurry along your progress. And it, so did you encounter a lot of people out there? That sounds obviously super remote. Not, not really. No, um, there were, I, I would say um, in the in the, in the the southern region and in, in the far north in the extremities where there are communities that people go between some remote villages by this ice road. So to start with and to end with, we did see... Um, you know, a number of, I don't know how many, perhaps a, a couple of vans a day 
Um, and there are local outfitters there that take tourists on the ice to camp and, you know, play golf and do all sorts of, um, uh, you know, typical tourist working experiences. So we, we encountered some of those guys. Um, and then as we got sort of three quarters of the way, we came across a, uh, a remote weather station. Um, and, and typically my mate, despite being 20 years older, is fitter, stronger. So he would, um, he would wait a little in camp in the morning and I would head off by myself and he would then catch up with me, overtake, and I would meet up with him at the end of the day. Um, you know, maybe a slightly risky strategy, but one day it got to some midday and I was thinking, ah, you know, where is he? Something happened, you know, um, was, was he had a heart attack, has he overslept, you know, whatever, there were loads of things going on in my mind. And it turns out um, we, that evening we'd actually, prior evening, come across a, uh, a remote weather station and thought, oh, let's, let's stay in the hut here. There's a really nice couple who have offered up there, the nice little wooden hut with a stove and um, interesting place, interesting people. And the the next morning while I was waiting for my, my teammate, uh, a, uh, a bear had woken up with a sore head early from hibernation, had come down from the mountains, gone into that area. So the ranger had to check the bear off, I believe, so he wasn't allowed out of his hut. So, you know, there was, was interesting wildlife even wild. while uh, um, there. I didn't get to, to see that, but uh, yeah, yeah, so wild 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 wildlife place. So that was uh, that was uh, what month was that? April or, or early May or when? When did you do that? So that was um, February into March. Oh, okay. so the later proper winter. Yeah, the lake starts freezing from December. It takes a couple of months to get fully frozen, and um, depending on depending on winds and temperatures, um, because being such a large lake, it's not tidal, but the strong winds do, and change the way the the ice forms, um, and certainly the amount of, I guess what polar travelers would think of as the the broken pack ice that jumbled you know half a half a meter to two meter high and broken ice that can um, disrupt your progress and we didn't see too much of that you could skirt around it you know skirt 500 meters around and we did go through some some bits of that um, and some leads where there's open water you know hop over some some parts of those but pretty safe really and yeah so how often, Ash, how often were you on, on just in your boots and how often were you on skis? So actually, um, and it, this sounds absurd, I walked in snowshoes uh, quite a lot of the way, actually, because if you think of those um, small um, rubber cleats that you pull over your boots for, you know, walking on the sidewalk in winter, well, we took a whole bunch of those and they just fell to bits after the first few days. They weren't really robust enough, so to get traction on the ice and not end up slipping over all the time, I put snowshoes on, which wasn't ideal because you've got snowshoes on ice. Um, but I would say 65, 70% of the time, um, use that, um, on, on, on ice and snow. And occasionally, you know, when it was firm snow for the other sort of 25%, I would just walk in my boots and the, uh, the final third, uh, may need skis if it was um fairly deep snow um but managed to get a get away with a combination of just just walking my boots and, and snowshoeing that particular year so so the cabin that you took refuge in or that the couple that you stay in and where you saw the the bear um were you on land at that point or had they set up on the ice in a peninsula of land or where, where were you exactly then yeah so it was it was land and there were small headlands now and again where 
uh, rich people had sort of summer houses along the way. That's you know in the um, in the early stages of the southern part of the lake. But certainly, where the, the weather station was just a little un- inland. And I can't remember how many nights we camped out on the ice, but we tried to most of the time, just because. I mean, it sounds really trite, but it's pretty magical experience to think you're camping on a meter of ice and then below you is uh sixteen hundred meters um it's deepest of just water and um the first couple of nights are a little bit yeah it takes a while to get to sleep because you've got this every now and again a almost like shelling on the western front you know that kind of distant shelling sound i was gonna ask about that if you could hear the ice and yeah, this this natural phenomenon that's always creaking, changing, and then every now and again there's a really big just and then you know just punching my mate in the night. I said, "Do you think? Do you think we ought to move the tent here? Are we going to be okay?" And then of course he says, "Yeah, don't be soft, go back to sleep." <laughs> um, so yeah, that was a a very interesting experience. Ice is ice is pretty amazing, as you know. Up here in uh, in the Canadian Arctic, we build highways on it to um to drive across and um we were doing a charter at the airline i fly at was 737 so this is a big airplane into a diamond mine in the middle or sorry a gold mine in the middle of nunavut and uh, they didn't build a runway they built a runway on a frozen lake so we're landing 737s on uh on a frozen lake it was pretty amazing you were landing them yourself so it wasn't yeah I Uh, i did yeah i did the first flight in there to test it out and we, as long as we had a meter of ice, yeah, we were safe. And uh, it was, yeah, it was pretty amazing. You could build yourself a serious runway on a, on a lake because basically there was no restriction on the, on the distance. And yes. um, they would scarify the ice so that there was some grip to it. Yeah. And uh, it was, it was actually, it was, it, it was kind of rough, but um, it was uh, completely fine and uh, pretty amazing. So. Um, there's a lot of parts of the world that use ice uh, to either live on or to trans to get across uh, huge chunks of territory that you can't do so in the summer. So, and I know that that sound you talk about that 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 cracking and that rumbling in the ice is disconcerting, but you certainly get used to it. Oh yeah, no, absolutely. And I think that last point you made was you know a, a really good one because often in the, in the adventure community, we you know people come back and they try and convey the the difficulty, the hardship, the the risk to to others that are interested in this. And sometimes that can be overstated. And actually, like you say, there are communities all around the world that live with extremes of whether it's heat, cold, uh, risk just getting to school, crossing rivers and so on. Um, yeah, and that's certainly a theme that I try and, I guess, pick up on in, in writing about adventures, trying to tone down on the hubris. And, yeah. Um, yeah. And that's a really good point. I was gonna I was gonna bring that up in this in this interview, but it's a perfect segue. Is you've written before about I'm trying to encapsulate how you put it, but you said that you've got that's a, maybe not disdain, but you you frown upon adventurers who try to hype up the danger or hype up the remoteness or hype up well the hype around an, an expedition. And um, in 2023, it's pretty difficult to do anything that's novel and really putting, you know, sticking your neck out there because of the fact that we're all carrying a GPS tracker. We've got a sad phone. We have a way out. 
And uh, can you expand on that a bit, uh, Ash? I know that you've uh, you've been frustrated in the past with people who are continuously, as we say, dining out on one thing that they've done. Yeah, and I would say actually, an elements of that aren't, aren't new. Um, you can go back a hundred years and you think about how polar explorers like Shackleton, Scott, and others had to sell their expeditions to sponsors. Um, of course, you need to highlight some of the um, unique elements to attract interest. We don't all have, you know, trust funds or six figures to be able to just pull down from our bank account and go and plan for all our trips. So I do really appreciate that adventurers, explorers, however we want to, you know, term um, people in this community need to be able to sell um, their their expeditions to get traction with potential sponsors. Um, however, I guess, and, and certainly this is the view of the, some of the outlets that are written for, um, I'd, I'd like to try and write and report on adventures from a, a stance of um, keeping it real without wanting to, um, um, again, sound trite. It's about um, giving credit and kudos and highlighting those that that do the difficult things um, that are at that leading edge, like Eric Larson, one of your previous um, guests, spoke about um, wanting to do adventures that are in some way original or creative and, um, again, pushing that razor's edge, the cutting edge of, of adventure, and highlighting those people that are doing the, you know, the um, really authentic, difficult adventures and giving them a little bit more time in the sun because they don't always get it quite often it can be um certainly in the mainstream media those that are well connected with pr companies those that have a, an angle that sells and, and quite rightly it could be an angle that is important to um to highlight whether that's something like equality and diversity and thinking about gender roles in adventure and the first female or the first lithuanian or the first whatever to to climb a certain mountain that's that's all really important but it may not be the most original, innovative adventure out there. And um, yeah, I, I, I try to, to highlight those people that I think um, deserve their, their time in the sun. And that's certainly um, what the Explorers Web uh, site that I write for tries to do. And do you get, do you find that you get a lot, you, you did a, a recent social media post about sort of the value of social media and, and you were questioning whether you should, you were actually basically asking, it was a poll to ask your followers whether you should continue doing what you're doing with respect to posting stuff, sort of randomly, but yeah. places that you enjoy and whether people were getting value out of it. And you also mentioned the fact that you will be sometimes controversial and that you will, um, you know, give your opinion. You're not going to give, uh, you're not going to simply give uh, softball interviews to or softball articles about all adventures. How how did that go? And do you have any examples of where you've written a a non softball um, critique of an adventure? For example, we know about this this uh, this record fourteen eight thousand meter peaks that was just recently done by um, by a female um, helicoptering flying between each mountain and um, sometimes landing fairly high up. And mm -hmm. these are examples of of controversies that maybe the, the average lay person in the not adventure community wouldn't be able to distinguish, but what have you, what have you encountered as in with respect to pushback or accolades? Yeah. No, question. I, I, yeah. No, a really good question. Something not keen to talk about rather than going into specific expeditions or trips. I think just to address the first point around pushback, um, certainly 
and people who might read my work uh, and other colleagues who take this kind of viewpoint um, might consider it as being overly critical or in some cases negative um, and you know you just have to read some of the comments that perhaps pick holes in um, some of the articles I've written that that state that and I guess you know from my perspective I would say my job isn't to be a cheerleader there are you know there's your family there's your friends there's the mainstream media there are PR companies that do that for said adventurers in every walk of life be it you know politics musics art sport there are journalists that look at different views they critique they discuss um you know their team's performance at the weekend and they might be critical of a certain player in the team and weigh up their pros and cons and their strengths and weaknesses but sometimes i think when it comes to adventure um there's a, a reluctance to do that and the reason why i think it's important is to try and place these adventures in context there's a huge history hundreds of years of of men and women going off doing hard difficult things um and and sometimes um due credit isn't given to those historical figures or others perhaps even recently that that have been there uh, and done it and sometimes if it's historical figures with you know worse equipment less logistics couldn't just go on the internet to um find out where x y and z is and just buy some kid and fly off and do it all nice and neatly like we can now so i think it's it's important and take the eight thousand as example which you gave laval um nims perger and Kristin harilla who have both climbed the eight thousand as in in three months for Kristin and six months for 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 normal perger respectively um fantastic feat of logistics physical fitness organization uh mental and physical strength and you, you know you've got to applaud that but the other side is that 40 years ago reinholds messner and jersey kukushka climbed new routes on most of those mountains with very few logistics some in winter some solo some without oxygen um and although yes sure there was fanfare and ego and self-promotion then as well um and they didn't do it um to set a marker on the time they just wanted to complete them all in in the best style and in the most pure um way from a mountaineering perspective and so to set up this sort of record saying well you know i'm i'm not going to do it in the the same pure alpine style um i'm going to have all the logistics be that helicopters oxygen sherpa teams with me um and I want to do it quicker than you. It seems like a bit of a straw man argument to me. You're not comparing apples with oranges. Uh, sorry, uh, sorry, apples with apples. You're comparing apples with oranges, really. And that's the problem with a lot of adventure records is a lack of comparability. So you can have Messner on one hand who you know didn't have oxygen, didn't have Sherpa support, um, didn't fix have fixed ropes, climbed an alpine style, sometimes solo, sometimes winter, sometimes by new route. Or you can have you know these guys now 35 odd years later with a team of sherpas with oxygen with fixed ropes with helicopters um to go between base camps and that's all fine you can't criticize climbers for using that but if you're going to compare the two and say well mine's better and here's a record look at me give me all the sponsorship then i think setting it within context is is important and unfortunately that is hard to describe and convey without being seen as as negative or critical um, and that's okay because, you know, as anyone who writes or gives an opinion in public, you have to be able to deal with the flack and that's part and parcel of, 
you know, as I say, being a, being a writer or someone with an opinion. Yeah, I had this pushback. I don't know if this podcast isn't about me, but when I um, talked about wanting to, why I climbed Everest without oxygen, I, and I used the word style. I just wanted to do it. Reinhold Mezzer was my hero growing up, him and Pat Morrow. I know you know uh, who Pat Morrow is. And and uh, these guys were my heroes. And they just had a certain style about them. Uh, Pat was this typical understated Canadian, and, and Reinhold was the, you know, the superstar, the messy of... of all the the greatest athletes combined that that you can imagine as a, as a mountaineer. So some I said, yeah, I mean, I wanted to do it with a different style. But to be clear, that day I had electric socks on. You know what yeah. I mean? I had I had I had socks with a heater in them. Um, is that is that in the purest form? No, I mean, so there's degrees of style. And as a writer, for you, you have to sort of really separate the wheat from the chaff on that because for an uninitiated looking in at a record three-month um, push, to, uh, almost like a military-style push to climb these 14, 8,000-meter peaks. Unless somebody really knows what's going on in the background, it would be like if somebody said, oh, yeah, I've skied to the South Pole, but then you find out it was just a last degree. It's completely mm-hmm. different. Um, and then I have another uh, example. When I rode the Atlantic, okay? Now, this is this is something that, that's interesting. 53 days mainland to mainland, but another guy did it from Newfoundland to the Scilly Islands off of the UK, 700 nautical miles shorter. But in the record books, he holds the record. I don't care, but that's an example. If you don't know the 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 real details and you're not educated in it, you can believe the hype. And that's a, a brilliant example and unfortunate for you, Laval. No, uh, I but I didn't do it for a record. I just did it to see if I could do it. Yeah, and this is where... You know, in some sense, and I understand the importance of records, whether it's speed records or the firsts of certain, um, you know, locations, whether that's poles or mountains. But in some cases now, we've gone beyond the major ones. They cheapen and devalue the experience and the things that we learn from adventure. I think that, um, you know, historically, when when people explored horizons and, you know, went across and migrated around the world, it was partly out of necessity, but they would have brought back law and stories and experiences and learning. And that's a huge part of, of adventure literature that's in some ways getting written out by a focus on whether it's, you know, social media traction, sponsors and so on. I don't care, you know, necessarily how difficult it was, how quick you did it. What did you learn? What did you feel like? What did you experience? Um, what was the culture like? What does cold feel like? What the sounds like I was describing? What value um, did you take away that can enrich your life and, and others? Um, and I guess you, as a you know, as a speaker of Al, those are the, some of the kind of things that you try and convey to your audience. What you learn and how that can um, be useful to to others in in everyday life. Um, because it is a privilege to be able to go and do these things. And you know, again, without sounding too trite, um, we have a little bit of a responsibility to yeah share some of that you know with the rest of our tribe whether that's the adventure community or or the wider world it doesn't just need to be be about you know ego and and, and the self and um i think that's sometimes something that adventurers aren't some adventurers aren't so good at reflecting on the reasons why they're out there and what, what they've gained and, and and what they can share some are very good you get some great people who are very self-reflected and very honest and say hey yeah you know 15 20 percent is ego the rest of it i love the land it's the beauty of being out there 
another 20% is I just love my buddies and we have such a great time and it's the shared human kinship around the fire in the tent at night, that kind of, you know, all that good stuff. And it's in all sports where like, it doesn't matter what sport it is. It can be team sports or it can be endurance sports where we're naturally tempted to compare achievements and feats and people, but we can't compare eras. We can't, we can't training changes. Everything changes. It's not, um, it's fun to try and have some barometers for them, but to Lal's point, the electric socks, that, that, that example exists in, in every sport right now we have extremely high paid athletes who sleep in hyperbaric chambers and stuff. And those things didn't exist to people 30 years ago. And in fact, 40, 50 years ago, some people who played professional sports had day jobs. So there's no, like, you can't, there's no reasonable way to compare them. I mean, yeah, there's a a very good point that I suppose I don't consider too often, actually. And we should place, you know, these adventures within the context of the here and now. And we do try to, you know, it's, it's different to say, like, let's take the 8,000 meter peaks compared to when you climbed Everest without oxygen Laval. Things have changed dramatically. They've changed dramatically in the last three to five years. And with the number of people going to those peaks, the support and again the um, even the availability and the 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 rate of oxygen flow that, that people are on, and you know we perhaps shouldn't judge too harshly compared to 10, 15, 20, 25, 30 years ago. There should be some um, degree of comparison to the current context. So I would agree with that. I think there's a balance between the two. Probably. Okay. You're, you're in an interesting position, Ash, because if you were a, a, a sports writer in the UK writing about footy or cricket, um, you wouldn't be playing footy or cricket at a high level, but you are in a bit of a unique position because you are also an adventurer. Uh, you've got the, you've got these three hats that you wear. Your, your, your real job as a, as a, what would you call yourself, a medical researcher? Yeah, and then you've public health scientist, yeah. public health scientist, and then you've got your uh, other real job as a journalist. But you're also always you're always uh, you're always in search of of other expeditions. You're focusing on the Arctic. I think that's a real passion of yours, and it's interesting because you are in the arena as well as writing from outside of it. So it gives you a really good perspective about about what's real and what's not. I think you can really sniff out bullshit easily in that when you when you read about a uh, an expedition or an outdoor feat. I know, absolutely, I agree. It does help to have some experience, and I'd never, you know, put myself in um, the sort of ballpark of somebody like yourself or others. Um, but I, I like doing my own lower-level, small, independent adventures, and it does. And certainly, if it's related to a polar or Arctic expedition, as soon as you know, you see some of the early PR talking about minus fifty-five in Antarctica or, you know, hundreds of miles an hour winds or various different types of suffering, you think, well, hold on a minute, actually. It's good to say so the radiation in Antarctica in the sun. Um, in, in, in summer, I know many people who have not suffered from X, Y, and Z. Um, it's not that cold. You know, it's not that cold. That's, you know, your daily mileages. Well, actually, I know someone that can do bubble. You know, so you, absolutely, having that context is really helpful. Um, but conversely, I suppose the other argument is sometimes that people might throw back is well what do you know you haven't done this yourself and there's some credence in that argument but again going back to like say a, a sports writer and um, it's a bit of a false logic you don't have to be a professional baseball player to you know to to write well on um, your favorite uh baseball team or to write critically or to you know place their performance in context we all have opinions on our 
um, favourite or not politician or musician and things that should or shouldn't be changed in society. Um, and, and adventure is no different. And again, I'm, I guess I'm labouring the same point as earlier. But um, it often seems that a lot of the adventure media is more cheerleading than than the other side and just trying to bring a balance to it, really. Yeah. And and I think you also, um, you mentioned my day job, all that's in, in science. And a lot of that is about accuracy and precision and authenticity and reliability and without knowing it, I think some of those things are fed into the things that I, I suppose I like to write about, whether that's accuracy of records you have described um, and so on. So have you have you gotten a lot of pushback, Ash? Like that, that it seems to me that you were um, not, not tormented, but you're a little bit torn in that, that post about what you want to continue on doing with respect to your outdoor journalism. Yeah, no, no, I think I, I probably need to find a, a balance in terms of, of writing because um, you rightly picked up that it doesn't always make you um, friendly with a wider adventure community. And that's um, that's OK if you're, you know, perhaps well financially remunerated or that's your full time job. But it's not for me. It's um, it's something that I do as a side hustle. And, and so um, I think in terms of reputation, and also links with within the outdoor industry it's a it's a fine line to tread because potentially you know that that person or that expedition you write about who knows in five years time you might be reaching out for some uh, some beta on logistics of getting to a, a certain remote place so i think um selfishly uh, and then maybe that's not great journalistic practice there's you know is a, a fine line to to tread for me that's not track it's more practicality as what it is yeah yeah, yeah. I mean, I haven't had too many bad experiences. There was um, one interesting character who I think in mid-late 2000s had had faked a South Pole um, expedition, had visited Antarctica, but had claimed some kind of record. Um, and actually Eric Larson, one of your previous guests, had written a really nice expose of this for Outside Magazine. Um, and this chap, um, anyway, had essentially was a, a polar fraud and um he had an unfortunate accident on one of the expeditions he was leading um in the himalaya and so i'd used the term polar fraud in an article describing him um and a couple of days later i woke up to see an email in my inbox saying oh i'm mr journalist so-called journalist uh you use this term which i disagree with well you know worst effect of how would you like it if my lawyers um sue you essentially which, you know, 5, 6 a.m. on a, on a Monday morning wasn't the most pleasant. So you do meet characters occasionally that, that lash out and, uh, you know, that's that's part and parcel of it, unfortunately. It's a learning experience, I guess. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. And, um, and again, going back to my day job, as I'm sure you draw on, and some of the experience from a high-pressure job might <laughs> not quite as high-pressure, but um, science is all about critique and other people's opinions um, and you know you could be presenting at a conference uh, standing up in front of your peers and um, you know people will be questioning the the accuracy of your data and the merits of your scientific methodology in front of other peers so you learn to um, to get a thick skin I think that's probably bowed me quite well for for writing you know I've learned these aren't these aren't my friends these are you know people that try to dispassionately um, yeah, describe their adventures in the best way possible. 
But that's what science is, isn't it? You come out with your hypothesis, you try and prove it, and you try and disprove it. And then you you present it to your peers, and they go after it, and they try and disprove it. And so that's why science is usually so darn accurate. And so if you if you take that type of uh, work ethic or philosophy into your journalism, you get a high-quality product because you know it's going to be challenged. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's all about finding underpinning and supporting evidence. And sometimes... You, know, you can ask adventurers for um, some supporting evidence for their claims, and they're not always forthcoming. Not not in my instance, but of course there have been, um, you know, well-known cases of um, GPS files suddenly going missing on a hundred on their GPS. Photos going missing. Yeah, photos go, and that happens unfortunately a lot in um, some Himalayan mountaineering where you know, summit certificates are suddenly magic magicked up from out of nowhere. Um, and, and and the like. But I think, you know, I don't want to come across as too negative. This is only a, a very small proportion of the adventure community. And uh, there are so many people out there that that I'm just absolutely in awe of. They're doing really hard things. And, you know, be that uh, in the polo world, somebody like Borger Usland. Oh, yeah. Um, and, and, and those guys um, to um, amazing you know, alpinists and so on, or, or lesser known people. So just thinking about your audience in Canada, people like Frank Wolf, Adam Scholes, mm-hmm. you know, dragging a canoe across the Arctic. Yeah. I mean, they've got journeys that could fill up five people's lifetimes that no one ever knows about really. Um, and so it's, yeah, it's those guys that I, I read their books and admire it. Yeah. And I suppose in a small, small way, aspire to be like, so it's, it's so important that uh, the stuff that we're talking about that these that adventurers realize that you know when I when I'm when I'm doing presentations and 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 if people are asking about my ocean row and I said listen just to be clear there were probably 1,200 refugees that just made it across the Mediterranean on a crappy boat um, with 200 per boat carrying kids and elderly people and so don't get too enthralled with the fact that. A Western adventurer with privilege had a custom-made boat with GPS tracking and satellite communications and solar panels and backup water makers, etc. It's you know you have to keep it you have to keep it in perspective. And this brings up I was just recently in in Latin America and I was reading about the Darien Gap, which I'm sure you know about this 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 remote stretch of land between Central America and South America, and the only part of the um, of the uh, of the route between North and South America that you cannot traverse um, via vehicle, for example, there's no road through there, and yet two hundred thousand refugees made it through there last year. And, and but people go on expeditions through there, and they and they and they pay to go on an expedition, and 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 yet you're probably passing, you know, women carrying Sudanese refugees carrying a baby on their back in the middle of the jungle. It's, it's just we have to keep it in perspective. For sure. Yeah, yeah, and the first, that's a, a brilliant point. And the first thing that comes to my head when you you mention that is, it's enforced suffering, isn't it? Sometimes you know, it was so hard, it was so difficult, it was awful. You should why, why why did you pay all that money to go and do it? And like you say, because there are many other people, unfortunately, around the world who have no choice um, in their suffering and um, the way they have to uh, cross oceans and you know all kinds of dangerous places just to find safety so have, exactly so have, have a better life and i talk about this with some other adventure friends as well and um, i think the way you 
describe and contextualize it is important. It's up to everyone. You know, you can't tell people how you know, what they should be doing. But um, yeah, it's not suffering is part of the fun, I think, isn't it? I'm sure. Yeah, we and I think now with the comfortable uh, society that we live in in Western society, uh, you know, I think we would have been the people that have walked down to the dock and gone on a on a boat to see the New World, right? Or to sail to the South Pole or to to go to the Arctic, but we don't really have those opportunities anymore as as people to go really test ourselves. So we have to do this, you know. We have to we have to we we've we've built an adventure community where there was no such thing before, mm. and. Um, I think it's good. I mean, you learn a lot on these trips, which which brings me to Lake Baikal. Was that your first sort of uh, tougher expedition? Was that your first cold weather, or had you done some stuff in Scandinavia, or have you walked around that Nevis in the winter time? And what had you done? Yeah, so I mean, yes, it was my first sort of larger expedition. I'd been on two previous um, ski touring trips in Scandinavia prior to that. Um, I guess I was a late starter. Um, for 20 plus years I've, I've hiked scrambled in the mountains and I had three or four years of rock climbing when I was at college university um, and you know I'd, I'd grown up in the scout movement learning how to camp cook back country food to navigate um, and it was at the age of 16 really that uh, a trip out to an international scout centre in the Swiss Alps um, awoke a bit of a sense of adventure for me and um, I you know, I, as I said, I'd, you know, I'd been camping, learned to navigate and all, all those other things. Um, but going, crossing a glacier, hiking up to a, scrambling up to a remote half-wide hut and staying in mountains, not big, two and a half thousand meters. And there were two things that struck me. One was silence. I've never heard such silence sitting on a call where, you know, you can hear your own heartbeat. The other the views. I mean, again, sounds trite, but 360 dizzying views, patchwork and villages everywhere, grassy knife edge ridges running off into the distance. I've never seen anything like it. It absolutely blew my mind. So from the age of about 16, I've tried to spend as much time as I can um, in the outdoors. Um, but it really took until almost 30 um, until um, I was given a book about it historic polar expedition that made me think right you know there are lots of things you've dreamed about doing you've read all of their books uh, you know i read um voraciously as a teenager and some of them were behind me about you know the classic uh post-war british mountaineering guys like bonnington scott haston williams brown you know they were just the best of the best and that really inspired me um and you know, long story short, I never really made my dreams come true in my 20s. I was focused on building a, an academic career. And then I was given a book that sort of, um, yeah, it did change my life to some extent. Gave me a kick up the backside. And I thought, right, I need to go and do some of these things that I've always wanted to do. So I've spent the best part of, um, yeah, the last decade trying to do that. It's, it's really, life is so fickle. I mean, if you hadn't done that trip to the Swiss Alps and if you hadn't read that book, your life could have gone off. We talk about this often in the podcast, how your trajectory, trajectory of your life can be completely changed by something seemingly insignificant. And um, and you're probably thankful that it happened. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, and uh, I've got it here, just a handy prop. And so Alone on the Ice by David Robbins, oh, yeah, yeah. which um, tells the tale of Sir Douglas Mawson and, you know, an Australian geologist who... Um, 
is lesser celebrated of that heroic age of Antarctic exploration. We hear about Scott Shackleton and Amundsen, but no one really knows about Mawson. What suffering Mawson went through, what ultimate suffering, just you, you read that and you just sit there and you shake your head. Yeah. The way those guys suffered. And 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 so that and then you think, well, what on earth made you want to uh, go and do these things from from that kind of narrative? Hey, that that suffering. And I think if I was to reflect on it, it was the purity of it. There's something very very pure about giving all of your effort each and every day physically to make progress, whether that's cycling, you know, pulling a sledge, climbing a mountain. It's uh, yeah, it's a very pure way of living you try and you know not eat too much because you can't carry too much you uh wake up all that's on your mind is making progress and and doing some hard physical work and the simplicity is what i love about it once you get there like it's it's all the preparation all the all the faffing around but when you finally click into your skis or you put in your snowshoes and you hook into your harness and you start to pull that sled it's just you get that mission momentum and things just fade away. All the, all the suffering you went through to get there. And then you're focused on that simple goal. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, well, and you've described it more articulately than I have could. And, um, Jerry, who I, I mentioned earlier, our kind of mutual friend, he described it well, you know, in the, the snipe, all the sniping at the wings, all that, uh, noise tends to go away. And, uh, there's a bigness in those areas that makes you both feel small and, and big at the same yeah, time. That's well and, uh, yeah, there's there's something special clearly about the wilderness and the wild in that respect. And I, I, you know, whenever I'm going on a trip and I'm telling Janet, like, and you're stressed out because you're, you know, you're getting on flights and you're packing gear, you're faffing around the airport with sometimes hundreds of kilos of gear, and you just, you know, you're sweating, you're you're trans transferring between airports, and your bags aren't showing up. But like like we just said, once everything comes together and you are you are moving forward. I always tell her once I start the trip or the expedition, everything just starts to fall into place. And after a couple of days, usually three days, your body starts to get into it. You know, you, you feel that familiar ache of a heavy pack on your back or the burn in your quads. And then, and then it's just pure simplicity. And, and you're like, Lake by Cal trip is like that. I love those type of trips where it's just like, how many kilometers are we going to do today? You know that just about every day something's going to happen, it, it, whether it's going to be crossing a lead, whether it's going to be a broken piece of equipment, whether the stove's not going to stir, whether you're going to freeze the tip of your nose, but that's why we do it. Yeah, and just as you're saying that, I'm wondering, those things that you bring back, how long do they last? And you're talking about, you know, you've got to problem solve and you've got to be flexible to overcome those days challenges. And and certainly for me, when I come back into the work environment or every day, you think, ah, don't sweat it. It's all right. It's just a traffic jam or, you know, it's a tight deadline. I'll make, I know, I've done this before in a different arena. And for me, that lasts for a, a small, you know, short period. And then the usual stress and anxiety, day yeah. life come back in. How about for you? Do you find it, it helps or? Yeah, it, it, the same thing happens. You come back and where a week before the most important thing in your life was how much water was in your Nalgene bottle. And, and now you are being asked, uh, back when I was in management days, whether you, this guy gets overtime or not, you just be like, what, who cares? Like it, it, you go from these, um, these elemental requirements, meaning food, water, dry sleeping bag, make sure you're camped in the wrong spot, dodging avalanches, mi missing crevasses to dealing with, like you said, 
a traffic jam, uh, you know, trivial things that in the lab or at work or, and, and, but I, I think that makes us a, a more well-rounded person and, and sort of in that same vein, it, it's really tough to adequately describe the suffering you go through on some of these trips. You can, you can say, oh, I had the worst blister ever, but you can't really describe it, but you can describe the sound of that ice cracking under your sleeping pad. You can describe the sunsets. You can describe the the good feelings. And that's because we as, as humans forget pain. And like yeah. I always say during my talks is if humans didn't forget pain, a woman would only have one child, right? But, but we forget pain. Very true. And uh, we're, we're programmed to, to, to forget about the really hard stuff. You, you can, you can bring it back and you can, you can try and share it with your audience or the person you're having a beer with at the pint, but uh, 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 a beer at the pub with, but it, you can better describe the, the, the views of the villages and the Swiss Alps. You can better describe the, you know, the sunsets and sunrises on Lake Baikal and, and that the ice with the bubbles underneath it. And th- those are the things that, uh, I think that's why we do it. I think it sounds like you need to start writing some, uh, some books, Lamel, because, <laughs> because, you know, adventure literature is awash more with the former of, you know, descriptions of suffering and how difficult it is. And it, there is a move away from that. And certainly, I mean, there's a good publisher in the UK who are trying to um, place precedence on stories that take a, a different angle, you know, when there is a relationship with the land, culture, um, you know, all sorts of things, but moving away from, and, uh, you know, not to get sort of too political about it, but the, you know, the, the age old kind of um, white man comes along and triumphs over, you know, a uh, difficult environment or mountain, that kind of of narrative very much. You know, yeah, trying to move away from that. And there are lots of great books that do uh, do approach things differently, but we could do more. And conquering, that word conquering is just such a, to me, it's such a crap, terrible, terrible word. Yeah, yeah, I... Um, I, I caught up with a uh, a British climber about five years ago, just after he'd come back from climbing Latok uh, One, the North Ridge of Latok One, which was um, kind of you know considered to be one of the last great problems of the Himalaya, and um, he was really concerned with you know you're going to make sure obviously that the way it's described and the climb is authentic and and all all the sort of stuff I've been describing earlier, and um, I was yeah yeah no absolutely and I'll I'll definitely be able to do that. But of course, uh, this was for a, a mainstream newspaper. They need to sell the stories. So I filed my copy to the editor. And then a couple of days later, I woke in horror to see, you know, it was focused on an unfortunate, you know, tragedy, actually, um, where a Russian guy had died a couple of days before the Brits were there. Um, but, you know, it had the typical terms about conquering and all that kind of uh, you know, terminology in there. So he, he was less than happy, and, and I was less than happy. But uh, you, you have to accept that that's what sells, unfortunately. Yeah, I, yeah, I don't, I don't like that word at all. I don't even, you know, even climbing Canada's highest peak. I don't stick a Canadian flag in the top. I don't, you know, just get up there. And I always say you just touch it on the top of the head and you sneak back down because it lets you go up there. And and uh, you've been pushing your luck, and you you've got to you've got to just appreciate the fact that you were there, and that's it. Don't make any don't make any claims while you're up there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, it's, as I said multiple times, it's, yeah, just, if we can dial back the hubris, that would be, that would be great. But I appreciate, you know, we all, we all get excited. You know, we all have an element of, 
ego, I think. Um, most of us could hopefully admit that, that drives are part of these 100%. Um, adventures. And um, Mike Horn, the, you know, the, the great polar traveler, climber, and, you know, <laughs> multi-sport adventurer, um, I think he's written somewhere about, you know, people describing their motivations for adventure. And he essentially said, um, in not too many words, if you think you're out there to raise money for some sort of charity for various unfortunate people, you're full of it. You know, when you're in a risky situation, you're cold, you're tired, you're worried about avalanches, crevasses, whatever, open water in the Arctic, you're doing it for yourself. That's what keeps you alive. That keeps you driving forwards. The rest of it are, of course, admiral aims and, you know, it's great to fundraise and have secondary purposes, but yeah, that, that inner ego um, has obviously got to be strong, I think, to to adventure. Mm -hmm. And well, you know, I, I admit it from my perspective, I don't know about this. <laughs> well, you're hearing it from Mike Horn, who him and Uslan went to the North Pole in winter. <laughs> like, just, yeah. Like, you think you had humidity issues on Lake Baikal and you had a sun? I just don't even know how they, how they kept their bags dry, their sleeping bags. It must have been crazy. Yeah. I mean, that's a, and that's a different a level of adventure. And I guess just to, contextualize it for your for your listeners and viewers they crossed the arctic ocean in in winter darkness uh, and didn't fly in to start they took mike's boats um, and were dropped off and walked across the arctic ocean to to finish the other side um, and you know that's very cold temperatures on a frozen ocean in dark darkness um polar bears polar bears that's about as hard as it can get and that's where you have to think there are very few people alive that can ever pull that off and and i don't know what you know beyond their experience and unique skills what enables them to be sets them apart to want to do that and be able to do that i'm not sure i certainly know somebody like borg is a very taciturn individual um, and you're probably not able to quite elicit where the magic is but certainly yeah. there are some people on in that rarefied atmosphere that um yeah a very unique a viking hardland yeah 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 and again a, a friend told me you know if, if you want to be a good polar traveler you need to be born norwegian or canadian so uh, yeah focus lucky in that so tell me about your what are your plans moving forward you um what's your next adventure plan what's on your what's on your list that you want to do yeah, I mean, again, it's all couched in being able to get time off around around having a day job um, and around being able to raise funds. So um, having been to Greenland for the first time, I'd absolutely love to return there. Um, certainly in winter, I mean, we're not talking about a big expedition here. It might be a couple of hundred kilometers mm -hmm. doing a similar route to the one we hiked in summer, but just to experience those mountains and that, that area in winter. Um also on the other coast, the eastern side of Greenland, um, more remote, polar bears, um, bigger mountains, more interesting hiking in terrain. So um, I certainly would like to do some summer hiking um, around near um, Kulusuk and Tasilak, which is where people traditionally get drops off uh, Greenland ice cap crossings as well. Um, and go and get a charter boat, get taken up a remote fjord and, and go hiking for a couple of weeks. Um, and you know it's it's nothing to write home about it's yeah in, in, in terms of um in the in the adventure world but for me i it's a very remote place i love photography um and i, I 
think Greenland is a wonderful location for that. So just to be able to go and work on my photography in a remote environment. And then see wildlife, which I just think anytime I see wildlife anywhere I am in the world, it just adds a, a new level. Yeah. Oh, I know. Absolutely. Hopefully not too close. Um, if, <laughs> as far as bears uh, are concerned. But so I think Green- Greenland and the north of Scandinavia. Um, and when we think of the Arctic, um, a lot of people might typically think of North Pole um, or the Canadian North. But um, the Scandinavian North has some, you know, I'm thinking Finnish Lapland, Switzerland land, the north of Norway. They've got some amazing um, national parks that in terms of European standards are, you know, wild and wilderness areas. Mm-hmm. And you could go away and have a month's um, sledding expedition without seeing anyone. You can get, you know, minus 20 temperatures or lower. Um, you've still got 1,500 to 2,500 metre mountains. Um, you, can, you can recreate an Arctic-style expedition up there pretty well. And for me, it's a two-hour flight rather than a 10 oh, that's nice. flight. And a four hundred dollar flight rather than a three thousand dollar flight. So you know, there's all those um, things that point me towards that side of the Arctic rather than uh, your side. Well, you keep me in the loop, Ash, because I know people who work at airlines that fly in the north that could uh, can help you. Out. I think I offered that to you uh, prior to COVID. So if you're going to come up here, let us know. And if you come back to Alberta, I saw that picture of you standing right near Mount Amnesca. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I forgot he did come to Alberta. Next time, let me know. Oh, absolutely. No, yeah, trying to um, get over to Canada for some general travel. So I'd love to meet him. Good. Thanks for being on the podcast. Ash will be in touch and we'll probably have you on again after you do your next trip. No, cheers, Laval. Um, real pleasure. Great to uh, have a really good chat with you. Thanks very much. Another huge thank you to Ash for spending some time with us. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in and listening to the podcast. We really, really appreciate it. As we said at the top of the show and in every episode, the best way that you can help us support the podcast is simply by word of mouth. So if there's somebody that you know that you think would enjoy what we're doing on the show, please let them know about it. And then, of course, sharing on social media is another great way to find new listeners. Um, And so our positive ratings and reviews. If you can take a moment, whether that's Apple or Spotify or wherever you're finding the show or Google, uh, give us a positive rating and review. That helps us find new listeners as well. Thanks for tuning in and we'll be back soon.